Take your Bibles again and turn to the book of Hebrews, chapter 4. Here's where we're at today, this great passage of Scripture, Hebrews chapter 4. Back in 1940, as Hitler was starting to take over Europe, was challenging Great Britain, Winston Churchill went before the House of Commons, and he made this speech on May 13th. He said, he said to this house, he said, he could only offer blood, toil, tears, and sweat. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer in one word, victory is victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. On June the 4th, just about a month later, he said one of the most famous speeches of modern times. And he said before the House of Common, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall defend our island, whatever the costs may be. We shall fight on the land. and We shall fight in the fields. We shall fight in the streets. We will never surrender. And on the basis of that speech, the people of England rallied and strengthened and went on to have confidence, if not in themselves, but in a man who had given them that kind of confidence in that speech. If that's the case for World War II and that situation, the passage we're looking at today perhaps is that passage of Scripture that gives us confidence in victory in Jesus Christ. Of all the great passages in the Bible, this is one of the great ones that gives us the kind of confidence that we can have. So the question we come to today as we turn to the Scriptures is, do we have that kind of confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ? Are we confident of our salvation? Are we confident of, the, of our victory in Him? As we come to this passage of Scripture, we're going to come to a, a familiar passage, and yet one often, I think, misinterpreted. We're going to be looking at the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our high priest, and we look at this ministry that he has for us. What does it mean to us? What is it about? What do we know about the high priestly ministry of Christ? Well, first of all, we know that it exists for our benefit. Look at verse 14 of chapter 4. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. We have a great high priest. Now, to understand the significance of what he's saying here about the high priesthood of Christ, we've got to back up and look at the context. So as, we're, as we've seen throughout Hebrews, this book is just interrelated constantly, one, one thing after the other, connection. And so we go back to the earlier chapters, uh, verses in chapter 4, and we find in the context here that he's talking about rest. Remember that? Uh, he's inviting us to his rest. And the rest he's talking about is the eternal rest that will be ours forever. In verse 1, he says, Therefore let us fear if, while a promise remains of of entering his rest, one of you should seem to have come short of it. So he says, There is a promise remains for rest. Now go down to verse 9. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So he's he's given us a promise here. There's There's a rest waiting ahead for the people of God. You and I are invited to that rest. But he's concerned, as we remember in, the, remember in the context, that some of them are not going to make it to this eternal rest. And that seems to be the heartbeat of what he's saying in the earlier verses here in chapter 4. In verse 1, for, for example, I just read it. It says, Let us fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you seems to have come short of it. He's fearful that some will not make it. He's talking now to a congregation of professed believers. These are people who claim to be Christians. Uh, they're part of a, of a church or Hebrew Christians. 
Uh, at least he professed to be. But he knows that some of these people in this congregation are not saved. And he's very concerned that some are going to fall short. They think they're saved. They think they're going to enter the rest of God. And he's saying, I'm concerned that you may not all make it. Some of you should be fearful of that, of missing out on that. He moves on to verses 2 and on down. And he says, this is not just hypothetical. This has happened before. And he turns his back to the Old Testament people who uh, missed out on the rest that God had for them. Verse 2. For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them. They had the good news, but it didn't profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Verse 5, and again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. And verse 6, therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached to them failed to enter because of disobedience. And so there has been a precedence here. There has been a a history of the people of Israel who failed to enter the rest that God had offered them. Good news was there. The the message was there, but they failed to enter that rest. And why did they fail to enter? Well, look at the end of verse 2. Because it was not united by faith. If you're going to go to a concert and you walk up to the front door, they're going to ask for a ticket. And you said, well, I don't have a ticket. And they said, well, you can't come in. You need a ticket to enter the concert. What is our ticket to the, to the invitation of rest? What is our ticket that lets us into God's family? It's faith, he says in verse 2. The reason why they failed was because they did not unite the truth that was given to them with faith. They didn't believe it. They didn't trust God. And therefore they failed to enter because of unbelief. And so he moves on to verse 7. He says, look, if you are in that situation, if you're one of those that that could be failing to enter the rest because of unbelief, I want to press upon you the urgency to not wait around. In verse 7, he says, uh, one of five times in chapters 3 and 4, he says, today you need to do something about this. He says in verse 7, and again he fixes a certain day, today, then at the end of the verse, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Five times he says this, today's the day. And then we drop down to verse 11, and he says, therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest, so that no one will fall through following the example of disobedience. He says, be diligent about this, make this your business. If if you're looking at your life and things are not lining up between you and God, don't play the game. Don't put it off. Be diligent to move forward. Today's the day of salvation. Today's the day to come to Him. And then last week we looked at verses 12 and 13. And in 12 and 13 it, it, it goes deeper for us. He says in verse 12, For the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom he has to do. What's he saying? He's saying that you cannot hide from God. He's saying in verse 13, God already knows it all. God knows your heart. God knows what's in there. God knows what's going on. And the word of God exposes what's inside of you to you. So that as you read the Word of God, you begin to see what is true about you and your great need for Christ. Let me say this to you. If you want to live in darkness, spiritual darkness, intellectual darkness, if that's your goal in life, which uh, seems to be the goal of a lot of people, don't read the Bible. 
Let me encourage you to keep your Bible shut at home. Keep it on a shelf. Grandma had that Bible. We've had it in the family for years. Uh, but don't you open it. And don't you read it. Because as soon as you start reading the Word of God, it exposes your heart. It exposes who you are. It shows you your great need for salvation. And you need to come out of darkness into the light. That's what the Word of God does. And so as we come to the end of verse 13, uh, we've, where we left off last week, we, have, we know then that we are in, matter of fact, this is very negative, actually. We know that we are in great need of salvation because God knows our hearts and God knows just how messed up we are spiritually. He knows the rebellion that is there. And in verse 12, we've been exposed to that in the Word of God. Matter of fact, it says it, it goes right to the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Right to the motives. Right to the things you're thinking that nobody else knows. God knows, and the Word of God has exposed that to you. So when you come to the end of verse 13, we are, or verse 12, 13, we're a mess. We, we are, we're in desperate situation. Rather than confidence in, the, in entering the rest of God, when you come to the end of verse 13, you are in despair. Where do I turn? I have seen what I am. I, I, God knows what I am. The Word has exposed what I am, and I have no hope. I am in despair. I am lost, and I am lost forever. And that's the concern that we have in this passage. The concern is, as we looked at this wonderful truth, the promise of rest, I cannot enter that rest. I will never find the rest of God. Why? Because I am lost in my sins, and God knows it, and the Word has exposed it, and I know there is no hope for me. So let's have a song and go home. All right? I don't think so. Because as we move forward, what happens is we begin to realize that there is hope for us. There is hope for us. And that hope is found in the, in the, in the high priestly ministry of Jesus Christ. Now, there's one more thing I would mention, because we're mixed, he's writing to a mixed group of people. Some of these people are saved, but aren't doing very well. Some are not saved at all and think they're okay. And so as I preach today, I'm, I'm preaching to a lot of different kinds of people. Some of you are walking well with Christ. That's great. Some of you are kind of on the fence. You're not real sure where you are with Christ. And others of you know you don't know the Lord. So as we look at a passage like this, we begin to, to wonder you know, where we are on this. As we look at the passage, we find also that in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, those who are partakers of Christ, if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. Okay? So we who think we're saved, what happens when things go bad? Okay? What happens when that besetting sin that you thought you had covered and taken care of years ago has come back? And uh, you are now embarrassed and ashamed of that. What happens when you hit a cold patch? When you've been doing pretty well for a while, but then, you know, got distracted by life, things got, got busy, and now you're not, you're as cold as ice spiritually. The songs we sang this morning didn't move your heart at all. The Word of God doesn't touch you. Prayer doesn't ma- matter to you. The people of God don't matter. You're just as cold as a block of ice. What happens when that happens? What happens when your health breaks or, or a loved one dies and, and you begin to doubt the goodness of God? 
What happens then? And what happens if you, uh, you walk away due to some wound that somebody has given you? You hear all the time of people saying that they were wounded by some Christian or some church or whatever, and they walk away from God. These things happen in life, don't they? These kinds of difficulties and painful things. What happens then? How do we know that when that happens to us, we will not sour on God? That we will not turn against God? How do we know when those things hit? It's easy when things are good. But what about the tough times? Well, here's the answer to that as we begin to look at our text, our text starting with verse 14. And he says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So he again is calling on us to hold fast our confession. And as he says that, I want to say this to you right now. There is no guarantee, now listen to me, there's no guarantee that when you hit one of these hard spots of life, that you will not sour on God, that you will not turn against God, that you will not apostatize and fall away from Him. That's hard to take, isn't it? But if that ever happens, God has done you a great favor. God hasn't wounded you. God hasn't hurt you. God has exposed you. God has shown you that without the props of your life that has been holding you up, the good times that are around you, without those props, you have no true faith in Him. And you need to examine your life for the truth of your relationship with Jesus Christ. Remember Job? Everybody knows Job. We're glad Job's in the Bible, and we're glad we're not Job, right? Uh, Job, uh, the Satan came to the Lord, and he said, Lord, if you, if you take away all of Job's props, all of his money, all of his children, uh, the love of his wife, you take all these things away from him, give him physical health issues, he will turn on you just quickly. And he didn't, did he? Why didn't Job turn on God when he went through all these, these bad patches of life? Because he was a true believer. He wobbled. He struggled. He failed at times. He questioned God very pointedly, but he never turned from God. And if you, turn, if you turn from him during the times of difficulty in your life, God has done you a favor. He has told you you're not saved because a true Christian will not apostatize. A true Christian may struggle. A true Christian will, will have problems. and They'll doubt at times. They'll have these different issues, but they will never turn from the Lord. That's a sign of our salvation, he says in 3.14, that we will persevere in the faith. When we come to this passage of Scripture, we realize, you know, that uh, we have some advantages over Job. We often say, well, Job was an Old Testament saint. Look at the advantages we have. We have the completed Word of God. He didn't have that. Matter of fact, we don't know if he had any Scripture at that point in time. Uh, he didn't have the Holy Spirit indwelling him and empowering him. We do as Christians. But there's one other thing that we usually miss, and that is the high priestly ministry of Christ. Job didn't have that. You do. We have the high priestly ministry of Christ, and therefore we are to hold fast our confession. Let's take a look at this in verse 14 again. Christ's completed ministry as our our high priest. Let me start by saying this, if you want to do a little deeper study of of the passage of Scripture, if you've been reading Hebrews with us, you might note that back in 2.17, he mentioned the high priest ministry of Christ. So he mentioned that at that point in time. And now he he drops it. He comes back here. 
In chapter 3, verse 6, he told us to hold fast our confession. And then he drops it. And he comes back here. It's like he went off on tangents. He, he had things he, he wanted to deal with. And then he went off on a tangent to warn us that not everybody who thinks they're going to get into God's rest will. So he's got that warning out of the way. And now he's moved forward. And he's talking now about this ministry of the high priesthood. Now here's our problem. If I ask for a show of hands, how many of you this week thought about high priesthood of the Old Testament? I don't think I'll get many hands. I mean, that just isn't something you think about. You're over at Walmart and you run into somebody and said, you know, I've been thinking about the high priesthood of the Old Testament. But what about you? You've been thinking about that? No, I'm trying to find cereal. I mean, nobody thinks, you hardly don't, you don't do that much. And we're not that familiar with it. But remember, he's writing to Old Testament Jews who are now coming to the New Testament are saved. These people understood all about the Old Testament priesthood. That's why we need to know the Old Testament. And he's taking us back here. This is foreign to us, but he's taking us back here to Leviticus chapter 16. You can read that some other time. We don't have time today. But he's talking about the the Day of Atonement, the highest, holiest day of, of Judaism of the Jewish faith. On the Day of Atonement, one day a year, the high priest disappeared behind the Holy of Holies. In the tabernacle and later the temple, there was this veil across the Holy of Holies. Inside the Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant and the mercy seat. And the high priest went in there once a year, taking with him blood from the sacrifice on the outside, and he sprinkled it on the the, uh, mercy seat. That's very important to where he's going. So even though you haven't thought about the high priesthood or the holy of holies for a while, get that in your brain because we're going to go right to it. As he goes back into that holy of holies and sprinkles that blood for a period of time, there was a temporary covering of the sins of the people of Israel. It was temporary. Chapter 10 of Hebrews, he makes it abundantly clear that those Old Testament sacrifices could not remove sin permanently. It could cover it. It could not remove it. Only the blood of Christ could do that. But the Old Testament Day of Atonement, what the high priest did that day, pointed directly to what Jesus Christ would do for us when he came. And so that's the significance of what he's talking about here. So as he does that, we go back to our passage of Scripture. Go back to verse 14. And I want you to note he's taking us somewhere where almost nobody ever goes before. All right? And uh, we're gonna, I'm going to say something, and you're going to write down on your Bibles, he's a heretic. All right? You ready, ready for that? And then you start throwing things at me? Okay? The cross was not enough. Oh! The cross was not enough to save us. Who says that? Well, I'm, I'm looking for a new job next week, I suppose. But let me, let me go back. What is the gospel? What is the complete gospel? Well, there's several components. First, there's the incarnation. There can be no salvation if God doesn't become man. If God doesn't come to the earth. You got, the Lord was sent by the Father. He came to the earth for us. He lived uh, on this planet for three decades or so. And he lived perfectly without sin. It's going to be very important when we get to verse 14, 15, and 16. But that's not the gospel. That's not the full gospel. Let's move after those three decades of living perfectly on earth. He now moves to the cross and he dies on the cross. He even says it's finished at the end of the cross, right? 
But it wasn't entirely finished because if Christ had died on the cross and that was it, he would be a dead Savior. And he would be, he'd be in a tomb today. And those people that go over to visit Israel could actually see his bones. You don't do that because he's not there. So that leads us to the resurrection. The cross wasn't enough. The resurrection was needed. He had to have victory over death. And he did. But the resurrection is not enough either. Because if, he's, if it's the resurrection he, and that's it, he's still walking around on earth. Something else was needed. We hardly ever talk about the ascension. It says here, since he, we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. You ever thought about what that means? He went back to the Father. He started at the throne of God at the, with the glory of God and he came to earth. And now he's coming full circle. He's gone back. And what has he done? The high priest took the blood of the sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, sprinkled it on the mercy seat. Jesus Christ has sacrificed his blood for us on the cross and has gone back to the Father. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is now ministering as our high priest because he's finished the work that he was sent to do. So the gospel includes all those components. And I think we need to be aware of it. I think that's what he's saying here. And if we understand that, he says, we then should hold fast our confession. Holding fast to what we believe. And the reason we can hold fast, folks, is, and picture this, is like from the throne of God, he has thrown down to us a lifeline. And without that lifeline, we are lost. In chapter 6, verse 19, if you just look over a page, at least in my Bible, it says, this hope we have is an anchor of the soul. A hope both sure and steadfast and one which enters within the veil. Same picture, but now he uses the anchor. What good would it be if I had a lifeline to say to that balcony up there, and I'm going to pull myself up like I could do that. But let's say I could pull myself up that, that rope, but nobody had anchored it to anything up there. I would just fall flat on my back. I wouldn't survive that. It has to be anchored. Our anchor is in Christ. Our anchor, he says in verse 19, is for our soul. Where is it anchored? It's anchored on the throne of God, where Jesus Christ sits at the right hand, ministering as our high priest. And so in verse 14, he's making it very clear that the great high priest, after finishing his work on earth, went back to heaven, went back to the throne of God. And there he sits ministering for us today. So the message, which was very negative at the end of verse 13, is now very positive. At the end of verse 13, we're lost. There's nothing we can do. But verse 14 says, Christ has done it for us. It's His work. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And now He sits at the right hand of the Father, ministering for us. And you say this if you're thinking, okay, well and good. Christ has done all that is necessary for my salvation. But how do I know that I will not fall? He cannot fail, but I can. How do I know I, I, you know, I'm weak. He's great, but I'm not. How do I know, how can I be certain that I will enter his rest? And that leads us to verse, the next verses. The high priestly ministry of Christ not only exists for our benefit, but it assures us that the high priest, Jesus Christ, understands how weak we are. Verse 15 says this, For we do not have a high priest 
who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. I want to back off on that just a little bit. This is the first of several times he tells us to draw near. This is, this is the, uh, an amazing statement he makes here. And by the way, as I go through this, this is tough stuff. People say, well, you got a nice, quiet sermon for me today, an easy sermon. I'm afraid not. As you can already tell, it's going to get even tougher, so hang in there. I grew up eating Cracker Jacks. I don't know why I'm saying this to you, but I, remember in Cracker Jacks, they had a little prize at the bottom? So I was determined to eat all the Cracker Jacks to get to the prize. Of course, I wasn't smart enough to turn it over, take it out of the bottom. But, but I ate the crack, got to the, and there's a prize there. Okay, this, from this point on, I'm going to give you some Cracker Jacks. At the end of this, end of this service, sermon, there's going to be a prize. But at first, you may not like it. Because when I opened my Cracker Jack prize, I thought, pretty disappointed. I ate all those Cracker Jacks for this. At first, you're going to say, whoa, I'm not sure about this. But I hope you go away absolutely thrilled with what Jesus Christ has done for you. So there's, keep that in mind as we go forward. As we look at this passage of Scripture, he's calling us to draw near. We have to understand how incredible that was in ancient times. The ancient pagans and the mythologies that were flooding the whole world, they had all sorts of gods and spirits and ancestors and all that kind of stuff. There were all these animist-type people, but they never had a personal relationship with their gods, nor did they want one. They wanted the gods to stay away from them. Leave, them alone, leave us alone. Don't even notice us. They could not approach their gods. Even the Jews could not approach God as we can today. And if you don't believe that, go back to chapter 12, verses 18 to 21, where we're given that picture of the frightening situation at Mount Sinai for the Jews. The Stoics, the great philosophers of that time, uh, believed their gods had no feelings at all. They, they, they could not experience joy or sorrow or happiness or love. And they, they, had, they were unemotional machines, and they did not care about us. And then they also had the Epicureans who, who taught that the gods were somewhere having a great time, but they had no time for us either. They could care less about humanity. These ancient myths, this is the world in which Christ came. In these ancient myths, people feared their gods and their deities and their spirits, and they still do today. The gods were unapproachable. Uh, the Stoic God was without feelings. The Epicurean God, gods were distant, and the Jewish gods wasn't right there with us either. Only the high priest could go in the Holy of Holies. And then comes Jesus. Jesus steps into the world of the unapproachable God, a world which had been for centuries being taught that you could not come into the presence of God. He would, God the God of the gods of the spirits would kill you. They would destroy you. They don't love you. And then came Jesus. And he walked among us, and he loved us, and he, he, he grieved with us, and he laughed with us, and he died for us. And now he stands as our loving high priest, as a mediator between God and man. One, one commentary, commentator said this, It is almost impossible for us to realize the revolution that Christianity brought about in men's relationship to God. For century after century... They had been confronted with the idea of the untouchable God, and now they discover a God who has gone through all that man has gone through. Now let's bring it up to the 21st century. 
Do you think the people in our world today have a good, good idea of who God is? Do they have a good image of God? Do they understand God? Not at all. Uh, most of the world ignores God or hates God or rejects God. They could care less about God. They have false images and views and philosophies about God. That's our world. That's where we live. Everywhere we go, people have a wrong view about God and then steps up Jesus. And in his word, he reveals who he is. In his word, he reveals why he's come. And then he invites us to be with him. What an invitation. Sinful people invited to approach the living, loving God. And when we do, we find that we don't approach a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Let's start with the word sympathy. It means to suffer with. It also has, carries a connotation of pity. The Lord understands our weaknesses and he pities us. He pours out for us his, his sympathy, his pity, his understanding. And he understands our weaknesses. Now, it's important to know weaknesses is not the word sin. He's not talking about sin here. He doesn't sympathize with our sin. But he knows how weak we are. He knows how feeble we are. And quite frankly, folks, that's a hard one today. We've been told from, from kindergarten on for decades now that we are wonderful. That we can do anything we want to do. That we're all beautiful. We're all gorgeous. We're all basically perfect. We can set our, anything we set our minds on, we can do it. Because we're great. We're wonderful. And then steps up the word of God that says, no, you're not. You are weak. You are feeble. And in the hearts of hearts, no matter how much propaganda we're thrown at us in our schools or commercials or whatever else, in the heart of hearts, we know we're weak. We know we're feeble. We know we don't, we're, 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 it's impossible to approach the living God. But somehow we believe we're unique, don't we? I go over to the Fit Club a few times a week to work out. I'm bench pressing 500 pounds now. <laughs> and uh, I needed a drink after that. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, I, I notice uh, different kinds of people there. It's interesting to observe people. Some of those guys there, these, these dudes are muscle bound. I mean, they got muscles coming out of their earlobes. I mean, they must go over there seven times a week and, and work out for hours at a time. They're, I mean, I can't believe the, the muscles these guys have got. It is unbelievable. But most of the people, when I go over anyway, are not those kinds of people. Most of them are kind of feeble. I mean, I feel quite young when I go over to the Fit Club. I think I'm the youngest person there almost half the time. And a lot of these people just crippling around. They can hardly walk. They're struggling with life. They're up in years. They have problems of all kinds. Now, I can imagine, of course, I'm just imagining, but I've been there. When you were young and you look, you're, you're 25 years old and you got muscles coming out your earlobes, and you look at these old people toddling around, barely able to walk, and you say to yourself, I will never be there. Right? But one day you will be there if you live long enough. Right? It's hard to believe you'll be feeble, you're, you're, you're in need of something when you think you, you, you are so powerful and so strong and have all the world in front of you. But the scripture comes to tell us, look, no matter what your physical condition might be, no matter how intelligent you might be, no matter how famous you might become, you are feeble before God. But Jesus Christ, our high priest, understands that. What a blessing. Because if he did not understand that, then you and I 
could never dare come before him. Because he does understand. He's been there, he said. I've been tempted, he said, in all ways like you. He he knows exactly what those temptations feel like. He had them to the nth degree, but he did not fail. But he knows what we're going through. He knows how hard it is to deal with life at times and with sin. He knows that so that he's approachable and we can come to him. In verse 15, he moves forward. That is verse 15. Verse 16, he moves forward to one more thing. The high priestly ministry of Christ not only benefits us, not only is he calling us that he could understand us, but in verse 16, he, he wants to help us. His ministry is there to help us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Here's the great invitation. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. Now we're getting close to the Cracker Jack bottom. Now ready for the prize. The throne of grace, this great term, is found only here in all the Bible. And we immediately jump to a conclusion and an interpretation of what he's inviting us to do here that I have become convinced is totally wrong. We always use this verse of scripture as an invitation to prayer. We're invited to come before the throne of grace in prayer. That is not what he's talking about. There is no mention of prayer throughout here. He's talking about coming before the Lord with our need for salvation. Prayer is an application of being able to come before him. But the text is not talking about that. The text is talking about this. Because of our weaknesses, because of our sin, because the Lord knows that, because the word teaches that, because we've been exposed, we have no hope. No hope of salvation. And then he calls on us to draw near to the throne of grace because now Christ has done everything that we need for us to draw near. He's accomplished it all. It is completely finished. Everything for our salvation has been done. Then he says, come to me. Draw near. Yes, it can be applied to to prayer because we do know him. We can pray to him. But this is exact, what, he's, what he's after here is the fact that we can come before him with complete confidence to do so. Now here, as I think about that, I want to I back up a little bit. Why is it that most people don't do this? Why is it that most people can hear a message like this or hear about the gospel and, and they back off and they resist it? They don't come with confidence before God. Well, what is that? It's because most people think that there's another way. And they can, they can get through the back door somehow. When I was a young boy, uh, I don't know, maybe second grade or something, we lived across the street from the football field for our high school. And, um, and we, all we had to do to get to the football stadium was to, to climb a fence and walk through a field. And we were there. And I remember vividly, because it wasn't a very happy moment of my life, I remember vividly when my mom and dad decided we're going to sneak in the back door. Uh, we're not going to go pay that huge fee to get in. It was like 50 cents a person. You know, we're not going to pay that. We're going to sneak in the back door. Well, I didn't know what to think. And my parents were good, honest people. So, hey, I'm going along. And as we climbed the fence, the, one of the guards caught us. 
I still remember this day, my mom making excuses by how expensive it was to get into football. My mom didn't usually do the talking. My dad did the talking. But she was, she was motor-mouthing along, giving all these excuses as to why we had done what we had done. Why did we try that? Because we, my folks thought there was a way in the back door. We could slide in and nobody would ever see us. But we got caught. The world thinks, almost everybody thinks there's a back door. There's a way to slide in the back way. And when we slide in the back way, we'll never get caught. But verses 12 and 13 says we will. And left to ourselves, we have no hope. But instead, he calls on us to have confidence. We can have confidence to come to him directly. Do you have confidence to go to the Lord? If you're not a Christian today, can you have that confidence? You can because you understand the high priestly ministry of Christ. Again, when I was a little boy, about fourth grade, uh, some kids at, at school started playing chess. And they brought little chess sets. And I got kind of into chess. But I didn't have a chess set. I didn't have any money. So I went home and I cut out chess pieces out of paper. And I made a little chess board. And, we, and my dad played with me some. And we played my little chess thing. Okay, But after a while, that wasn't enough for me. I wanted a chess set. And I found a little portable chess set for the humongous cost of $4.00. And I didn't have $4. So I went to mom, because mom, you know, mom's an easier touch usually. And I went to mom and I said, Mom, could I have $4 for a little chess set? You'll have to ask your dad. <laughs> dad. Ask dad. Well, dad wasn't so free with his $4 and wasn't so easy to approach. Good guy, but uh, pretty stingy. And I went to dad and walked around the house. I remember all evening walking around the house, kind of in his shadow, just walking around to finally, he said, what in the world are you doing? What do you want? And then my sheepish little voice, I said, Dad, I need a chess set. Four dollars, Dad, just four dollars. And Dad gave it to me. I still have that chess set. I can't find it, but I got it somewhere. I didn't have confidence to go before my father. When I finally did, I found him open. Do you have confidence to go before the Father? You can if you can go through Jesus Christ. And he understands the whole thing. He understands it all. The throne of grace, if you want to jot it down in your notes, was a reference to the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Once again, you don't think about the mercy seat very often. You might not even know what it is. In the, old, in the, in the Holy of Holies, there was the, the uh, Ark of the Covenant. On top of the Ark of the Covenant was what is known as the mercy seat. There is where God met man for salvation. On the mercy seat, when a high priest went in, according to chapter 16 of Leviticus, verses 13 to 17, he sprinkled blood from the sacrifices on the mercy seat. That's what the throne of grace is here. It's the blood of Christ applied for our salvation so that we can find mercy and grace at the throne of grace. When we come to him then, when we finally come to him with confidence, he says we can come with confidence only because Christ has gone in before us. He's at the throne, at the right hand of the Father. He's interceding for us. We come before him. What do we find? Two things. Mercy and grace. We find mercy at the hour of our failure, at our greatest need. And when is our greatest need, folks, if you don't know Christ? Your greatest need is when you recognize you're a sinner 
And you need the saving grace of Jesus Christ. At that moment, we need his mercy more than ever before. And as a Christian, as we come before him as well, on the basis of what Christ has done, we receive his mercy. We don't receive his condemnation. Notice there, no condemnation. No, what, what have you done this time? Know how awful you are. Know your sin is too great for me to forgive you. But we find mercy. And we also find grace. Mercy is needed because of our failure. Grace is needed to become what God wants us to become. Mercy forgives us our sin. Grace gives us life. An old Puritan said, God gives us grace because he is good. He gives us mercy because we are miserable. We're in need of what only he can give. The result of grace and mercy, he says, we'll find, we'll find at the throne of grace, help and grace in our time of need. That's the result. Now let's put all this together. This is a hard sermon. Hard sermon, but a wonderful passage of scripture. There's two applications based upon two sets of people. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, or you're not sure of your salvation, you have no confidence, no assurance of your faith, then the application is this, that you can only enter God's rest by the provisions of Christ by faith alone. And Christ invites you to do so. He invites you to come with confidence before him, and when you do, he promises to save you from your sins. And so if that is who you are today, don't hesitate. Don't put it off another day or another week. Come boldly before him and say, Lord Jesus, your word has revealed to me that I am a sinner. I am weak. I am in need of mercy. I am in need of grace. By left to myself, I am hopelessly, eternally, forever lost. But I come before you receiving the invitation you give me to receive you by faith alone for the forgiveness of sin. What an invitation. That's the, that's the great prize that I was talking about. But how about you Christian? Most of you are saved. What about the high priestly ministry of Christ in your life today? Well, we, have, we come boldly before him to, as well. We come with our problems. We come with our weaknesses. We come with our sorrows. We come with our confessions. And what do we find? We find a loving, merciful, understanding Savior who says, I've been there. I know how much you hurt. I know the sorrow you face sometimes. I know the temptations that sometimes overwhelm you. I understand all those things. But I invite you to me that you can come at any moment, at any time, and know that I am at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, loving you. I did all that I did. On, on earth, in the gospel, for you, that you can know me and love me and live for me, and you can have confidence. This is the point of the passage. You can have confidence of all that he would do for you and all he's done. Come boldly. Come with confidence. Have you ever flown in an airport and you're there and you're watching, you have a ticket for your flight? But you notice some people that are on, on standby. They don't do that as much as they used to. But if they're on standby, you notice there's something really weird about them. They're anxious. 
You're hoping somebody falls asleep or something and, or walks away and they've got an open place, but they don't know. They have no confidence, no assurance they're going to get on that plane. And so they're antsy about that. They're nervous about that. They're on standby. The Lord does not want you on eternal standby. He wants you to know that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know Jesus Christ. He wants you to know that you've been eternally forgiven, that you have a high priest in the heavens interceding for you. He wants you to know that you can enter his rest, and he wants you to have absolutely perfect assurance of that. He doesn't want standby Christians who are always wondering, am I I there? He wants you to know, and you can know, because of what Jesus Christ has done for you and what he's doing now as your high priest. Lord, we are so grateful today for this passage, hard passage. Lord, I I struggled all week to try to be able to communicate this. I hope it's gone okay. I hope you take this, Lord. I pray you'll take these words and take it to the heart wherever anybody is in their spiritual walk. Lord, bring people to you even today. May they recognize the need for for salvation, coming out of darkness, to come to your rest. And Lord, I'm sure there are numbers of people here who say, "I, I think I'm saved, but I'm just not real sure. I'm just kind of on standby. Lord, I pray that they can have absolute and complete confidence in their relationship with you. And if they don't have that, that they'll have it today. In Jesus' name, amen.